It's July the 6th, 2020, which is the first Monday after the lockdown was kind of lifted, in England anyway. And we're in London and we've driven through the bustle and the traffic of London on a Monday morning to an unexpected place, a really unexpected place, the Hackney Marshes, which is over 300 acres of common ground. And it used to be used for grazing, and in the Second World War, they used to bring unexploded bombs here and detonate them. And it's the home of Sunday League football with 88 football pitches, 88 full-size football pitches here and 100 matches taking place every weekend. So what a great place to go for a walk on this lockdown lifting day. And we've got a great guest to share it with. of the kings and the breath of the wind I knew the call of all the songbirds they sang all the wrong words I'm waiting for you Johnny Flynn is an actor, a singer, a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, sickeningly talented, I have to say. Equally at home on the stage of the Globe Theatre playing Shakespeare or the big screen in the latest adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma or on the concert stage in venues large and small. And his music is both contemporary and reaches back into the English tradition. And he's coming here today to take us on a walk, to play us some of his songs and to show us what he's been doing during the lockdown. Morning, Johnny. Fantastic to see you. It's a lovely morning, isn't it? It is. It's good. It's better than I expected. Where have you brought us to? Um, so we're in the Waterworks Centre, which is an old... It, there used to be a sort of pitch and putt golf course here, but it's in the Hackney Marshes by the River Lee, which is where I've basically been spending the lockdown. And, and you said this was the Waterworks Centre, because I think this used to be... There used to be a, a kind of water purifying uh, yeah. system here, yeah, didn't we'll there? Yeah, we'll go for it. There's this amazing... Do we start walking? Yeah, Otherwise we'll never get one to see it. It's the old gravel pits that they used to filter the water through from the Lee. So all of London's drinking water used to come from the Lee. And there are these old filter beds that they've turned into reed beds for all these indigenous birds. I, I'm so. really pleased to see you brought your guitar as well, yeah. which means you're going to sing for us, I hope. Yes. Oh, That's great. Fun, Fantastic. Yeah. Been agonising about what to sing. It's a weird thing, not not having played much out live for a long time, so I've forgotten what my repertoire is. But that's quite good because I get to um, kind of rejig it and go, oh yeah, I've looked through the list. And it's like, oh, I haven't played that for you know ten years. Or what about this song as a as a cover? And me and my son have been learning new songs to play at the piano. He plays piano, so. 
So how has the lockdown been for you as a, a psychological experience? Yeah, it's been really bloody weird, isn't it? I mean, I can remember feeling things and thinking things early on and thinking this is how it's going to be. Or, and I'm so in a different place to where I was in imagining what it would feel like to be this side of months of lockdown. And, you know, we didn't know how long we'd be stuck at home and all that. It's cool to be here because this is where I've come out as a sort of daily retreat from the intensity of being at home with three small kids. And um, have you really missed playing? Yeah, I've missed playing... With an audience? I've missed, I've missed relating to an audience, yeah. And that's the thing that I'm really fearful about because the other thing I do, the acting bit... Is well, that, that's been locked down as well, presumably. There's some filming stuff happening, but the, thing, the, bit, the bit that I love is, is theatre. That's why I got into it, and that's the touchstone of what I do and what I think of as the pinnacle of, you know, pleasure from, from my job. And I just, like, I feel really lost without that. It's kind of like, what do I do if we can't relate to each other and, and sort of uh, reach each other with stories in that way, whether it's music or, or plays? So I feel like, yeah, I mean, really, really depressed about it, to be honest. Could, could I help worried. by, by uh, <laughs> being an audience for you here? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. If yeah, you were, yeah. you know, if yeah, you were well, able to sing for us, actually. Yeah. Natalie's here, the producer, and yeah. Jeremy, the filmmaker. Uh, we, we could kind of be an audience. You could be an audience, um, yeah. And uh, you could play. Yeah, we'll do that. Who's okay. It? Let's head for one of these little ways in and we can sit by the river. Okay, so we're now going to go right deep into the undergrowth. Don't get your microphone caught on the brambles. <laughs> but there's a log here that is just made <laughs> yeah. for you to sit on. Like, by the beautiful river. We could be in the um, in the bayou. Actually, it's very clear, the river, isn't it, here? There's loads of fish. There's loads of people fishing every day and there's um, a heron and an egret that's usually that way. I don't know what I'm going to play, actually. This lovely guitar. Can you tell us about the guitar? Yeah, this is um, the guitar that I've mostly played live for the last sort of 15 years or so. It's a resonator. It's a national Trojan from, um, from 1934. Wow. I just love the fact that this must have, you know, must have picked up some stories, this guitar. It's kind of... Well, yeah, because when it's from the 1930s and it's been played by different yeah. musicians. Do you feel their ghosts when you put your fingers on the fretboard? There's something about it. There's something kind of, you know, the, the Harry Potter kind of wand philosophy of the, you know, the wand chooses the wizard. There was something when I picked it up, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. Like I've got, I've, there's some power to this. I definitely felt that. And it was weird. I, I was listening to so much country blues music at the time that I got it. And it was just before we recorded our first album. And I was really, even if I wasn't going to be playing exactly the same style as that music, that music had spoken to me so deeply, that early, the early blues recordings, country blues recordings. Which this guitar might have been used That This was kind of one of the kind of key ingredients of, yeah. You know, Robert Johnson and Lonnie Johnson and... Willie McTell and people like that. A lot of the resonators from the time mostly were metal bodied, so they had a really harsh tone. And they were basically built before um, electric 
amplification to be heard above the noise of a honky-tonk or whatever. A, no a noisy bar. Yeah. Yeah. And it has that power, but the, because this has got a wooden body, but with the resonator system... So it's like system, it's got a kind of metal loudspeaker on yeah. it underneath the string. It's a, different, it's a totally different system to a normal guitar. So the, the, string, the bridge rests on this, um, what's called a biscuit, uh, that just acts as a cone and, and sends the sound back into the guitar and then it comes out through the sound holes with this kind of loud, tinny sound. And it was actually considered, it was like a really cheap guitar in the 30s, this was. It was kind of mass-produced. It was one of the cheaper ones, but it's, they don't make them like they used to. <laughs> and, and what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing a song called Murmuration, which seems apt as, as we arrived. I thought that would be a good one. Yeah, I'll just let the song <laughs> speak for itself. God's all of the blue sky When wind comes and the night's a cold I'll take your hands off I dreamt I flew with the saints last night I know them all by wings side and up there it just doesn't count for naught Whether you're clever or wise When everyone is talking at the very same time I can still hear your voice, my dear Genesius, the actor and Agnes are two of the truest to fly. I know she's a stout heart, no, he had a full start. There's a promise of truth in his eyes. It's a stout heart catches the rain. It's a stout heart that feels the pain. It's a stout heart. Stuck to this soil. Yes, they'd never heard of us winging throne. Let's gather us up to the heavens above. Oh, we can always come back, my love. Yeah, we can always come back, my love.
That was fantastic. And you, you got some fantastic accompaniment yeah, yeah, from yeah. But the birds yeah. uh, singing along with you. And perhaps a little bit of an aeroplane too uh, went past. But that, that was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that was really nice. Shall we walk on? <laughs> yeah. You get quite a volume walk from that on. guitar, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's kind of, it's all about this uh, balancing when you're singing it acoustically. It's good. You have to get a good honk on with your voice. <laughs> get a honk on. Yeah. It's a well-known technical term. <laughs> I like that. So I thought I should, um, I thought I should ask you about the role of walking oh, yeah. in your life. Because I think you've done some quite big walks in your time, haven't you? I've done a few, yeah. I mean, I'd like to do a lot more. Um, have you done some pilgrimages? I have, yeah. I did a large stretch of the Camino to Santiago. Oh, that's supposed to be really extraordinary. Good. That was really good, yeah. And that I did on my own. It was before I had kids, and I just had a, a like a one-man tent, and I slept out in the tent, and then on one night, and then I'd sleep in a... They had these kind of hostels for pilgrims along the route. And what was oh, look, there's own... a heron. Look, oh, look, there's a heron taking yeah. off from the river, yeah. What, what was your idea for for doing that on your own? Why did you want um, to, to do that? I mean, I grew up in tiny villages, river, oh shit. <laughs> we should probably head out of Should we go back out into the open? Yeah. Watch out. Sorry, I've taken us on a bit of it. We can go out here, can't we? Yeah, uh, I hope so. <laughs> I can lead the way and bash it with my guitar if you want. Oh, good. Are you right? Yeah. All right, thank you. Glad I wore my big boots. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So should we just Where pick up? We? You were saying you grew up in, yeah. a, in villages. I grew up in these villages and I spent a lot of time, you know, either on my own or like walking with the family or whatever, or with my friends kind of out in kind of wilderness environments down long tracks that we'd gone to explore or whatever and I, I felt when I moved to London this you know that there was something missing that was appeased when I was out on these on these long walks when I was about 23 22 I did a year-long tour it was my first big kind of theatre job I traveled the world with like a Shakespeare troupe was this a propeller yeah this is company the all-male Shakespeare yeah. company Ed Hall's company and we went all around the world and that was amazing but it was like a year of my life where I was just performing every night and doing these two plays in rep and living quite a wild life and then sort of like it were in the middle of that tour we got offered a record deal I remember getting the call and they were like you know you've been offered a, a record deal from Universal and it's just a big opportunity. That must have been a big moment. It was crazy yeah so life had gotten really hectic and I'd recorded the first album in Seattle and just starting this cycle of touring a lot. And then it was time to record a second album and I knew that I needed some sort of experience or like talismanic kind of thing to give birth to this second album. And I devised this plan. I'd actually, the Camino is, is lots of different routes there's lots of different versions of it and my friend had done one called the Camino Primitivo which means the original way which is through the Asturias and the um, Picos de Europas and so it's quite up and down and it's you know 
there are bears and wolves and <laughs> wow. yeah. And you and fancied that, that challenge, did you? Yeah, yeah. I had this idea of being on an adventure and um, what was the most exciting moment? I had a really, really hairy first night camping out in the woods up a mountain. I found what I thought was like this perfect clearing by a river. I was so pleased with myself. I pitched my tiny tent, cooked my beans on the stove, like was drinking a beer, thinking this is great, and went to bed and then just heard a series of noises that I couldn't identify. And I hadn't really considered the, the you know, the more dangerous wildlife. The flora and I'd, fauna. Yeah. just thought, you know, it's Europe. I tried to kind of like recreate the moment in, in stories lots of times for friends, but it was this kind of <laughs> just really low um, grumble. And I was like, what the flip is that? And at one point it stepped right near where my head was and my body rolled into the indentation that it made with its oh my thing. So I was like, it, it can't even be a boar, like it, it has to be a bear. And also I was in, my tent was like a coffin and if I made any kind of movement, it would just like, the one thing I knew was that you don't want to kind of scare it if it is a bear. My friend Henry, he had given me, before I'd left, he'd given me a whistle. I had a pen knife. So I fell asleep with my head torch on my head and my whistle in my mouth and my pen knife in my hand. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, whistle it to death. But it was this extraordinary thing. I woke up in the, um, the dawn of the morning light and the, this, I just remember, I can remember the smell of that spot by the river and, and, and how it, as I'd fallen asleep, it had been so full of fear. And in the morning, it was just so full of hope and, and I was alive. And it, you know, it's Did so you ever silly. find out what the animal was? No, that's the great thing about it. It's, it's like, I, you know, in my mind, it was the devil. You know, <laughs> I, like, I really went to a really dark place. But the rest of the trip was just like, I was walking on air. Songs a thing, and this one's thin from traveling light. The stars at night, I've seen Behind old chum, the faintest 
his trains of what's to come. What's behind and what is near, vanished by a suckling ear, coffee luster. Listening's a really important skill, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it's mm. part of our armory as people who make radio. We tend to listen in a different way when we're recording. Mm -hmm. Do you mm -hmm. like listening? Do you like to be quiet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a word. For me, it's kind of everything. And I think that's what I learned on that, on that trip. And that's what I wanted to um, imbue the, the record with. What I wanted to reflect was the act of listening and what it meant to me to find time in a, in a busy life to, to just listen, you know, as simple as that, really. I said to Sam Lee, it's great when we go on, on these walks because we have such great conversations when we're walking through nature. And he said, yeah, but if you just shut up, <laughs> then you'll hear, <laughs> yeah, you'll yeah, hear yeah. what's going on around you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and around us now are the, are the reed beds, aren't yeah, they? The, yeah. Which I understand were put here after an outbreak of cholera. Yeah. In London in 1852. Yeah. 
uh, to make pure yeah. water. I did know that somewhere in the recesses <laughs> of my memory. But yeah, it's this amazing bit of industry. There were these gravel pits that I guess, the, yeah, the water filtered through different kind of levels of gravel and sand and stuff. And now they're overgrown with willows and these reeds that are a sanctuary for the birds. When we moved here, we first came on a bike ride through the, this bit. My son thought he'd um, come across some lost civilization, which I guess it is. Because you see just, it overgrown over the yeah, man-made Yeah, you can remains. see these huge concrete kind of structures. And then you, as we walk through there, there's a bit more exciting kind of bits of metal and stuff. <laughs> but it's just, it's lovely that you leave something for not that long and it, and it springs up with all this life. Do you want to put your guitar in the case? I'm just worried about the rain now. Around that time I got into reading the writing of Robert McFarlane. Great favourite of this podcast, I have to say. We're, we're oh, really? great fans. Yeah, no, yeah, I know yeah. you're friends. When we thought about moving here, Rob and I had met and it was this lovely thing of... I got a letter from him with his books. I was working at the Globe Theatre and an ex-student of his, because he teaches at Cambridge, and a friend of mine who's an actor gave me his books. So my old teacher, Robert, wanted you to have these books. He wants you to know that he listens to your music when he's out walking. I was like, well, that's weird, because I read his books when I'm writing the music. So it was, you know, chicken and egg type Extraordinary situation. connection, yeah. yeah. And have, but, you, have you actually been on a long walk with Robert? Because I go yeah, he yeah. walks really fast. He does walk fast, yeah, he's got long legs. Uh, he'd rather be running, I think, that's the truth <laughs> of it. He makes out like he's really into walking, but he, yeah, he's a runner. But he, we went, when I was moving, we were thinking about buying our first house here in Clapton, near the Lee. And Robert had contacted me because we were supposed to do um, a joint kind of lecture at St Andrews University, which is about writers and musicians um, collaborating or finding a common point of their work or whatever. And he said, would you do it with me? Which was a great honour. And um, we had to come up with a plan. And my suggestion was, you know, I'm thinking about moving to somewhere by the Lee. Can we walk the Lee from out of London into the Clapton? I don't know, we, we're sort of deciding whether to live here or not. And it's, I don't know, I'm always kind of cooking up plants. Like, things have to mean something to me. And I, could, I felt like I couldn't buy the house unless I'd given it this sense of, imbued it with a sense of meaning. And, and he obliged me and he, was, and he did loads of research. And it's why I know so much about the Lee now is because he told me all this stuff on the walk. <laughs> he's a good man to have with that, you on a walk. Yeah, he's a clever one, Rob. And he must be an inspiring companion on a walk. He is, yeah. It was really, really special. And we, we basically, we, and then we carried on our conversation through letters afterwards. And letters in the old fashioned way. Yeah, yeah handwritten letters. Like a proper letters. epistolary novel. Yeah. He oh, wrote wonderful. his first few on the, um, the maps that we'd used, that he'd printed out for... Because um, the Lee at that point is, is... There's several branches of it, so we wanted to be headed in the right direction. And uh, so he wrote his letters on these water, waterlogged maps that had got wet That's and fantastic. Rain. Presumably you've kept them, have I've you? I've got them somewhere, yeah. yeah, in a notebook, tucked in a notebook. Oh, this is a maze. Just, talking, somebody... yeah, just talking about the 
the lost civilization. I mean, we are walking yeah. across a this huge concrete circle. It does feel like a Mayan uh, artifact. Yeah, yeah, and there's, uh, there's some uh, bits of iron and metal sticking up yeah. and concrete paths with bumps in them and so on, which does look like somebody's left this ancient yeah. civilization, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, right here. So we're just coming out on the river now, aren't we? Yeah, the, so the this is the other bit of the Lee. This is the, it's still flowing very slowly, but it's the locked, the locked Lee. So, so it's, it's quite a big river here, isn't it? With yeah, the, this is where we launch our, um, our inflatable canoe from. Right. Oh, look at that. What is going on there? That's, maybe that's like the duckweed disperser. Green. It's like a weird... The whole green patches on the... But it's, Water. I can't tell where, I've never seen that, the bubbles coming out. So the, the really river weird. seems to be going both ways at once, doesn't yeah. it? I think they've got some kind of line pumping the, the air through. It's really yeah. weird. Um, anyway, these are like British waterways maintenance boats. Right, so they're doing work on the waterway, keeping it clean. Quite cheap and forlorn, 
and pitched with the spectres, aped all exhaustions and prayers from the rector, and with glance in devout, pulled a frown from his sack, weighed with loaves from the oven and bale from the rack. This is the calendar, these are the days, you know you'll be. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your family, because yes. you, uh, your dad was a, an actor who, who was in musicals, wasn't he? Yeah. T he tell was, me about um, him. He, um, he was an incredibly charming, very well-loved uh, man. He was a really good singer, had lived a really kind of unusual life, because he had been, as a boy, he was imprisoned by the Japanese in China. In a, in a prisoner of war camp in Shanghai, in the one next to J.G. Ballard. And then years later, he'd become an actor and they were doing the film of Empire of the Sun, which is the story of Ballard's incarceration in the camp. And, he, and my dad was cast in the film. And he's only got a tiny part, but there's a bit where he has to give his character's name as a roll call as he's loaded onto a truck. And he gives his own father's name and he was exactly the same age that his father was when he was really in the camp. So he's playing his dad in the, in the film. That must have been very emotional very for him. Very weird, yeah. yeah. I think it was. I think it was a chance to kind of relive a lot of those memories. And he didn't speak about it very much. We knew a few stories uh, about him being in the camp growing up. He was, you know, proudly told us that they fought over weevils in the rice that they found because they were the only source of protein and stuff. And, and did you go and watch him on stage? Yeah. His career was mainly as a stage actor. He'd come from the RSC and the old, the old Vic company in the late 50s, early 60s. He was in John Gilgood's Othello at the old Vic and was in the As You Like It with Vanessa Redgrave when she sort of was, broke out as, as Rosalind. He played Amiens, the musician, and wrote all the songs, I think. 
Anyway, so he'd had this, he had this kind of classical stage career and then he'd, he'd done plays at the Royal Court in the 60s and stuff, which was a theatre that I kind of gravitated towards for its kind of political and new writing. And, um, so I, I grew up with him as a bit of a, a hero, really. And what about singing? Yeah, he was always singing. He loved big band music, early jazz. I think something to do with his childhood and then they'd stayed in China, the family, for a little bit after the war and he was a boy chorister, although a different type of chorister to the, the one you might imagine. He was kind of like in street gangs, but then also singing in the cathedral choir. Angels um, with dirty faces. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, he, I'm, I'm hearing such echoes of you. Yeah. So, I mean, you went on to be a chorister, didn't I went you? On, yeah, I did that. Well, at Winchester? At Winchester, yeah. yeah well, and what we, was that experience like for you? Because we, we've talked to Chris Wood, the folk musician on this, about uh, the experience of being a chorister, and he right. said to me, I did my best singing before I was 12. Yeah. Did you ever feel that? I felt I was given this, like, incredible musical education, and I'm, I'm really grateful for it, but I didn't like being at boarding school. I didn't like being sent away and having this regimen of, you know, you do two hours choir practice a day and you have to, you have to practice your instruments for... Because you play um, quite a few instruments, don't you? Yeah, well, that, so from, that's what led me into it, really, because I started playing the violin at six and my violin teacher said to my mum, you know, Put him up for a music scholarship and he'll, you know, get your fees paid and everything. And we didn't, we had very little money, really. We were, you know, it was a, a, a lovely childhood and everything, but we, we, we didn't have much. My dad's career by this point had, had dried up, really. And anyway, we didn't have much money. And I got this scholarship and for my mum, she thought that this was this kind of amazing opportunity and it, and it was, but it was also really tough. And I think... Tough in the sense of being away from home? Yeah. yeah. There was a lack of warmth. There was, there was a lot of bullying from boys and teachers. And, and I just, I think I was quite sensitive. I'm, I am a very sensitive <laughs> person. Hmm. And I think around music as well, there, there was a coldness. I can't understand why like around my dad, my dad was very skeptical about me going off to school. He didn't really, felt like he didn't really want me to go. He, when you were listening to music in his car, it would be like him singing Johnny Mercer songs at the top of his lungs and you'd be singing along and you were just laughing. And then I went to this school where I found the music, music really beautiful, but mostly it was incredibly cold and like the religious context I found overbearing. And I, I still really love the music. I still listen to a lot of that music, you know. What, the sort of Stanford? Yes, owls. I was literally thinking, I was going to say Stanford. English choral music is really, really beautiful. But I don't think anyone knows that, like, what is behind the production of some of that is, yeah, is quite a, a fairly brutal regime, yeah. Yeah. So did things change when you went to Beedales, which has got a reputation as being much more of a relaxed, artistic... We go right here. School. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I then went to Beedales, which, although it was a boarding school, I was, you know, going through puberty at that point. I'd kind of like gotten used to the idea of living away from home, and 
and Beedale's was a school based on an ethos so basically you sort of decide your own path really and that really suited me. And was that where your musical journey began? Was that where you started to think about what kind of music you wanted to make? Uh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, you, you said about Chris Wood saying he did all the best singing before the age of 12. I felt like I had to spend the rest of my life trying to undo the classical kind of technique that I'd learned. Because I, I basically discovered Bob Dylan. How, how did you discover Bob Dylan? Well, my mum was also a good singer and had sung in a kind of folk band in the 70s and stuff. She, I'd inherited her old songbook where she'd written down every song that she'd learnt. And I think I found um, a version of Blowing in the Wind. I didn't, I didn't know who Bob Dylan was, I didn't know what he looked like, I didn't know how the song was supposed to sound. But there was the chords and I think the top line of the music and I could read music and I learnt that song just in that way. You know, it seemed like a lullaby or a children's song or something, but it was obviously the words are, are haunting and powerful. And then I found um, a copy of the Freewheeling Bob Dylan album on a CD at a school, like Bring and Buy Sale or Jumble Sale, <laughs> at my old primary school where I'd been at, in Stockbridge in, near Winchester. And heard his voice for the first time and I there's a picture of him on the front of the album um, but I couldn't believe that this young face had, was producing the sound that he sounded like an old wizened old man you know <laughs> and um, sorry I have to instruct this is yeah. the the wild flower meadow where there's like meadow sweet and stuff so this is where we were foraging yesterday what I was going to say we could there's a huge cloud of birds just landed over there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, so tons of birds. Anyway, I think we should just go straight up onto the top path there. Oh yeah, look. Look at them. That's a murmuration. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the trains. <laughs> it's crazy. I want to talk to you about detectorists oh, yeah. because uh, in a way that was how I first connected with your music because okay, I think yeah. it is perhaps one, you know, the greatest TV comedy of recent times yeah, you know, yeah, with yeah. Uh, Mackenzie Crook and Toby Jones and their metal detectors. It was, it was such a pleasure to be asked to contribute to that and writing the song for it was, was really fun and, and I've been so surprised at how popular it's been. I get asked almost every day to play it at somebody's wedding. <laughs> I have played it at a few weddings and maybe a few funerals. Um, Is it appropriate for a wedding? It's good for a wedding because it's it's good for a wedding because it's like you're looking, you know, come and find me. I'm here. I'm, I'll be your treasure. It's quite weird because I wrote it. I wrote the song from the perspective of the treasure lying in the ground. So it's a bit kind of a bit warped because it's, it's like this gold that's eliciting humankind's greed, you know. Yes. Uh, but people think it's romantic. And it's quite good for um, it's quite good for funerals. I played at a few funerals. I think I played it at my neighbour's funeral. It was the last funeral I played it at. And um, you know, because it's about waiting for your loved one to come find you. Uh, so it's a song for all occasions. <laughs>
loamy earth for me Climb through the briar and bramble I'll be your treasure I felt the touch of the kings and the breath of the wind I knew the call of all the songbirds, they sang all the wrong words I'm waiting for you I'm waiting for you It's almost in key Swim through the briny sea for me Crawl along the ocean's floor I'll be your treasure I'm with the ghosts of the men Who can never sing again There's a place, follow me Where a love lost to see Is waiting for you Is waiting for you When you started writing material of your own, mm. all sorts of influences must have come to bear. Uh, what sort of folk tradition music did you listen to, or have you listened to? I mean, I was such a disciple of Bob Dylan, that led me to British stuff that he had picked up and been influenced by. Um, well, like Martin Carthy. Like Martin Carthy, yeah. Martin Carthy was a big reference and when I first moved to London I started trying to find out whenever he was playing in, in London I'd go and see him play and I actually ended up playing on, on a bill with him at a folk club that used to run in Soho called the Pigeonhole and that was like I thought I'd made it you know I was yes. like, oh my god I'm on a bill with Martin Carthy. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that acting was going to be your career or that you could pursue this twin track music and acting um, career. How, how, did, how did you think about the future? I got to sit form having not done any school plays and I was desperate to do some drama and at this point I was also discovering political theatre and Brecht and got really into Harold Pinter and all that sort of stuff and I suddenly was like, right, that's what I'm going to do. And, it's going to, and I thought it's going to be different to the way my dad and my brothers did it. You know, I'm going to have my own theatre company. I'm going to do political theatre and blah, blah, blah. Of course, you know, that's stuff that they'd all touched on as well. But I, was, I was, had to feel like I was being original. <laughs> and um, so I went for drama school and 
didn't get in the first year and so I had this kind of enforced gap year, which was quite good because my dad died that year and, and then I went travelling. I kind of worked on so a fishing boat for six months during the time that he was um, dying and used the money that I'd saved to go off around Europe, bought, bought a camper van with two friends and went for several months around Europe. But then you got into drama school. I got, and then that year I got into drama school to start the following September and I went to a school called Weber Douglas, which has since closed down, sadly. Around that time as well, I met a couple of friends who'd kind of arrived in London before me and started playing in bands and running music nights and stuff. And one of them was a girl that I'd been at school with called Emmy the Great. And she and I, and another friend of hers who she was playing music with, set up a night called Apocalypso, which was a, like a roving club night that we did in various venues in Camden and Shoreditch and places. We'd rent a, a bar and, and, you know, take three pounds on the door or something. And, and it was a way of getting all our friends and us to, to get up on stage and, and play songs, which is what we really wanted to do. And then I, I, got, I started working as an actor and I realised that actually it's kind of not much fun being a jobbing actor and being sent up for... I was put up for a lot of very boring, like, leading, leading man, young leading man type parts. And I found that incredibly boring because I just wanted to be the clown. And it, it just was, like, suddenly quite crushing in terms of the vision that I'd had. And so music became a solace but I was playing in all these clubs and running around from, you know, between acting auditions with the guitar on my back because I'd be busking on the South Bank and then in the evening I'd be playing in some club or, you know, somewhere in Camden or wherever. And I was starting to write my own songs. And then I realised that somehow all this classical stuff had left me, like, with some profound understanding of, of musical progressions and songwriting and things like that. And, but what I kept coming back to was traditional music and when I wrote songs myself, I wanted them to sound like ancient songs. I thought there was a... I think it's quite easy to write complicated music. It's really hard to write music that sounds just right in its simplicity. And so I was just, like, listening to and studying, you know, like the Smithsonian folk anthologies and... Well, listening to the Alan the Lomax fierce, recordings. All the Alan Lomax recordings and that country blues stuff that I was talking about and, and discovering, um, you know, British traditional folk singers who had that ability to kind of uh, not get in the way of the song. Um, people like Shirley Collins and... Just going under the Lee Bridge Road again. Yeah. And that was like, from having come from this very like complex, high art, uh, choral background, that was like a, a really like a spiritual pursuit for me. And I could see it around in, in like modern music being made as well. It had to it had to have heart, and I wanted to find what the modern equivalent of that was. And so I was like trying to put that into the scene that I was in and the bands that I was playing with and, and just trying to get back to something simple and pure and true. Mm. Yeah, it had to be true and authentic. I'm um, just wondering if that's a cue for a song. 
Should be, shouldn't it? Yeah, it should be, yes. <laughs> you, you well, I could, do, so. I could do a Shirley Collins song. Oh, that would be amazing. I'd like to do one of her songs, probably. Or yeah. I'd say one of her, it's a traditional song that she did. Do you know Hairs on the Mountain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could sing that. song isn't it it's a great song yeah i like how it sounds like one thing until the last verse and you realize she's got this moral superiority to all of it yeah but it sounded fantastic and thanks for showing us the hackney marshes thanks for sharing your story and your music oh, with pleasure. us johnny it's been a, a, an absolute joy to walk yeah with no you. it's been lovely to to be yeah sort of breaking the lockdown a bit with uh, with this yeah Thank you. Johnny Flynn on the Hackney Marshes. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you have, maybe you could become a patron of Folk on Foot. We rely entirely on our listeners' contributions to keep us going. 
So if you want to support us by making a small monthly contribution, then just go to folkonfoot.com and click on the Support Us button. There are some great rewards and you can choose which level you want to support us at. And there are now over 30 episodes of Folk on Foot for you to enjoy. So please delve back into our back catalogue and hear some of these beautiful episodes. We know you'll love them. Thank you.